Coal mining is backbreaking, dangerous labor. Accidents in mines can lead to disability or even death. But even when a worker walks away from the mines, they may not walk away from the health problems associated with mining. In the 1990s, miners sued Britain's National Coal Board after research indicated a link between lung disease and coal dust exposure. That landmark lawsuit and the data supporting it is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism and Film. Our guest today is Johnny Jacobson. Jacobson is an editor with International Newswire, AFP, and a data journalist who has covered everything from Scientology to homelessness. Jacobson's also the author of an article in Significance magazine titled Defending the Data, Examining the Battle Between Miners and the Coal Board Over the Data that Linked Coal Dust to Lung Disease. Thanks so much for being here today, Johnny. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Um, I'm just going to start off by asking you what propelled your interest in this topic. Well, it was it was a it's a kind of bizarre kind of serendipity. I was actually taking uh, a year off from my job. I was in Birmingham, Birmingham City University, uh, studying for uh, an MA in data journalism, and it was around about that time that my father died. So um, my way of coping was it was to notify the employers, start writing an obituary, um, do what, what I could to help um, on that side. And it was when I contacted um, Brian Tarrant at Significance Magazine to say, look, could you put a wee word in, because he used to be um, a member of the society, the Royal, society of Statist- the Royal Statistical Society. Uh, and he said, I'll be happy to put something or, or send something to, to one part of the website that can do that. But you know, you should really do um, an article on this guy, because he'd read the draft that I'd written of the obituary that eventually went into the Scotsman. So I had to think about it. I was a little hesitant at first because obviously there are problems writing about something which is in a sense has a personal link, but in the end decided it was a, it was a story worth telling. Well, what was the biggest surprise when you started look, doing the research for this story? I think I have to say that this is a case that was extremely important to my father for all kinds of reasons because um, decades of research was being called into question, research which he had actually Mm -hmm. supervised and analyzed and and vouched for um, for 20 years. But what I hadn't realized that the stakes were far higher than that. This was about um, claims for minors who were suffering from respiratory diseases, which just weren't recognized at the time as being um, industrially related at the time. Uh, The only, the only game in town as, uh, as I was told was, uh, pneumoconiosis, which would be acknowledged as an industrial disease. But these guys were suffering from um, emphysema and chronic bronchitis, and they couldn't get uh, any compensation or or any benefits. Mm -hmm. So what was in fact happening is miners were dying dying of industrial disease and not getting compensation. This case was about changing that. And as it turned out, it turned out to have massive implications for thousands, tens tens of thousands of miners. From reading the article, it was one of the things that was interesting was they tried to make an argument about the data on non-smokers. Could you talk a little bit about that and what what uh, what was problematic? Yeah, the, the argument here was um, uh, the, the initial defense, shall we say, that was taken by British coal was that, well, look, they may be that some people are having a few health problems from coal dust, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is they're probably just 
um, these guys are smoking and it's about lifestyle and they're not looking after themselves. And so the serious health problems that they are experiencing are actually down more to the uh, the smoking than it is to the coal dust. And they, they would say there's obviously going to be a, a degree of problems with coal dust, but there's no scientific, scientific evidence to suggest that, um, in fact, um, the coal dust was the problem. And that was a major hurdle that they had to get over. And cases had fallen in the past um, on that hurdle, I think. So that, um, what the, the new approach that was being taken was to be marshalling the evidence. It was produced by the coal board itself mm -hmm. um, right. to try and defeat that argument. So what, what was your dad's training? What, what was his background and how did he get involved in this story in the first place? My father um, trained um, in statistics and epidemiology um, before he worked for the, uh, for the Institute of Occupational Medicine in Edinburgh. He had a few other jobs down south, um, uh, but uh, it was once he arrived in Edinburgh and he had to take a crash course in, yeah. uh, in this particular f field that he, he was fully into industrial health. Mm. Um, I think there's a, an anecdote on the website, as I've kind of tasted to the main piece, in which his boss um, told him to uh, prepare uh, a projection based on the existing evidence of, of um, how miners would be health-wise uh, in terms of pneumoconiosis. And he had to do a complicated calculation, which turned out to be something that could have been done on a computer, as one of his colleagues later told him. Um, <laughs> And that was that was just one of the things he had to do. But there was a lot of statistics. There was a lot of epidemiology. And one thing I noticed when I was reading all the the papers, the background to this, is there was the, there was the degree of suspicion between the, the the medical profession, the medical specialists, so to speak, and the statisticians and the epidemiologists. <laughs> and it took some time to, to overcome that mutual suspicion. You may know more about that than I do. I don't know. <laughs> so, could you, uh, for the listeners, can you define what epidemiology is? Uh, you put me on the spot now. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's I'll, see if I can bluff my way through it. You know what? I'll, I'll try but to bluff think, my way through if you can't. How about? <laughs> well, uh, you can give me marks out of 10. Let's see how I do. Um, <laughs> as far as I can understand, at least in, in, in this context, epidemiology, epidemiology is the, uh, the science of discovering um, how diseases develop. And, and that's particular interest was in industrial health. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily about how to cure it, but it's about... Um, looking at how it spreads oh. tell me how close i am oh I, you know I, I certainly i would give a guest no less than 10 out of 10 just because i'm you know that's part of being a good host no i think you did outstanding johnny that's I, a relief I, I have a question for you so i grew up in appalachia here in the united states uh coal mining country and certainly there were conversations about um you know miners lungs being unhealthy after coming out of mines for a very long time and 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 some idea dating from the 1950s that this might possibly be due to coal dust exposure. Um, what was it that that this this study your father was involved in um, that became so controversial and, and how and how was it that the coal board who commissioned the study was trying to undermine it? This is what's so shocking about it, because effectively what was happening was the British coal, as it had become, was effectively trying to trash the evidence, decades of research that was carried out by its predecessor, the National Coal Board. This was something that was launched in the 1950s um, with the advent of the National Health Service and the nationalization of the coal mines. There was a new kind of public spirited attitude to industrial health. And the idea was to get 24, 25 sample mines and to, to try and find out what the problem was, what was causing these uh, illnesses. Um, 
Um, but it wasn't so much, it wasn't so long before that. They, were, they weren't even acknowledging pneumoconiosis. Yeah. At one point, there was a very distinguished scientist called J.S. Holding, who said, no, no, actually, coal dust is really good. It actually um, immunizes you against things like bronchitis. He got completely mm. the wrong end of the speak. Mm. I mean, he was acting in good faith, but he, he, he was completely wrong about it. And it, it, it wasn't until the late 40s, I think, or the, or the late 30s, early 40s, that, that was, it was finally acknowledged in the industrial disease. But what this research was doing was a very systematic, large-scale study uh, with trying to introduce as many different, um, uh, account for as many different factors as possible to try and find out what the problem was. Was it the, the amount of dust? Was it a quantity of dust? What, so, so they could get some idea of what could be done to limit the damage and to, to do that. Uh, they had to accumulate a lot of data, do a lot of um, medical testing, not just the x-rays, which picks up pneumoconiosis, mm -hmm. but also lung capacity tests, which um, measures a, a different kind of, um, it's a different kind of health measure, which is much more important in this case. What do you what do you think what motivated the attack on the original research was it just to save money was that what was going on I mean liability it's uh, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to to be sure but yeah well no, let me let me slip my neck out yes I think it was about damage limitation one of the things that didn't come into um, that didn't come into my story was a couple of memos that I found in the National Archives um, British Coal were discussing the case uh, around about May 97, I think it was May and July uh, 97. And they were saying, look, we knew we were we were going to have a hard time winning this case, um, but uh, they were discussing legal tactics and how to limit the damage. And they included um, delaying tactics. They included um, tying people up in litigation. They didn't want to make it easy. Um, they just wanted it to go away because I think they knew that it was an open-ended um, uh, open any case in terms of damages, and it proved to be one of the biggest settlements uh, that was ever paid out. And we're talking about £2.4 billion that was eventually paid out in compensation. Mm -hmm. But they dragged it out. And as they fought this case, as they fought it getting to court, as they fought it in court, miners were dying. That's really what's so scandalous. Mm -hmm. It's not just about defending the honour of the research or the honour of the institute. It's about the fact that miners were dying while, they, while British coal fought a case that I think they knew they didn't have much chance of winning. And I, I think that's where the real scandal mm -hmm. lies, uh, not in the science and statistics, but in the, the fact that they defended it so long. And in fact, I spoke to Gareth Morgan about this, and he, he had a few ideas as, as to why they decided to fight it out. Um, uh, but I have that in a soundbite, which you might be able to use in, in any case. There was what was known as the magic train to Cardiff. If you were working in the valleys in a mine, you were, you were breathless, you would be sent on a train to the pneumoconiosis medical panel in Cardiff. These men would be disabled, couldn't breathe, but they would go down to the, the Cardiff where they would be told there was nothing wrong with them. Because what they were being told is they didn't have pneumoconiosis and it wasn't accepted that there was any other condition that could cause breathlessness. So they're ill, they go to Cardiff and were they told they're okay. Hence the term became the magic train to Cardiff. But the problem was it was it came down to money. Mm -hmm. I think. So in your story you suggested that your your dad was a little reluctant to get to get involved in kind of the court the court part of this story and some of the, the, the issues related to that. What what was kind of the, the uh the, the transition point. What was the what was the tipping point for him to get involved? Well, well, you're right. He was initially very um, reluctant. Uh, I mean, my father was very had very strong political views, but he made a very clear distinction between his 
his his activism as as I think as a kind of committed citizen. I mean, political activism was something that was the duty of of of, of anyone who cared about things to, to to engage in. But that was something that was entirely separate from his role as a scientist. And he didn't want to be caricatured as someone caricatured as someone who was um, biased or who was getting mm. politically engaged. He wanted the the science to speak for himself. Uh, one of his colleagues, um, Fenton Hurley, who recently retired as the uh, science director of the institute said that uh, my dad used to say what is the data telling you what is it? and that was his point it wasn't about um, preconceived preconceived arguments it was about looking at the data and seeing what came up um, and i'm sure you come across that in all kinds of scientific inquiry you shouldn't be trying to fit the facts around your theory you should be looking at the facts and telling them what Tell, and, and listening to what they're telling you. Mm -hmm. So when he came under pressure from the miners, basically the miners' lawyer said, "Look, we've been to other people, and and they're not they're not um, interested. We we have a, a long specialist who's trying to digest all this complicated um, statistics, but it's not really his field. And that was Robin Rudd, who spent several weeks in the witness box. And so he was very much a kind of a last minute, um, last gasp call because it only. In the, in the opening weeks or the opening days of the trial, I realized that this was the line of defense that the British coal was going to take, that they were going to trash the data itself. Mm -hmm. So that we need somebody who really knows that data clearly. And he said, well, look, I don't want to be a defense witness. I don't want to be um, getting paid for this. He would only do it on the basis mm -hmm. that he uh, would get expenses only and no payment for his expert, uh, expert testimony. Mm -hmm. And in the end, that's what happened. They had to subpoena him. You get a grand title. Uh, from the um, the uh, the chief lawyer of, of Britain, in which he was summoned to um, to give evidence before the Queen's Court. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington with Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and media journalism and films Richard Campbell. Today we're talking with data journalist Johnny Jacobson. Now, Johnny, this article very much is a discussion of this data, this controversy, but also your father Michael Jacobson's role in this suit. And earlier you mentioned sort of the complications of reporting on something that's so close to you. I know here in our journalism program, we are constantly telling our students that you don't report on things that are close to you, right? You may, because you need to maintain that critical distance. As you were sort of navigating this story and trying to do it justice to the miners, to the data, and to your father, how did you navigate that sort of, that issue of reporting on something that you were so closely connected to? Well, the personal element was something I had to be careful about. I mean, it was it was an advantage as well, because when I went yeah. to talk to people and say, look, I'm doing this article about this court case, um, and my father was uh, an expert witness and helped me win the case. I mean, the doors opened. I mean, on yeah. his reputation oh, yeah. alone, people were willing to talk. And people said some very kind things to me about my father's work and, and the contribution that he made to this court case. But at the same time, I had to be careful about looking through um, his personal papers. Uh, there were exchanges with colleagues, which were obviously not things that were ever meant to be made public. And I had to make decisions about um, what, when to respect privacy. And also, if he was corresponding with somebody else, I need to try and make sure that if I was going to use that material, um, I need to make sure the other person knew about it, even if I wasn't naming them. It was really just a question of checking my facts and making sure I hadn't get, uh, got anything wrong. I mean, it also has to be said there was a personal element um, to this battle. I mean, people's reputations were made or, or damaged on the basis yeah. of this. Yeah. And I had to make a decision, do I want to get into that? And in the end, I decided no, because 
as far as I'm aware, um, the experts on both sides were giving their evidence in good faith. And it wasn't a question of, um, you know, cynical people in, in the pay of the coal board. No, they were saying what they believed. So I made an earlier decision just to stick to the science, which I think is also something that my dad would have preferred. And, and in fact, my mm -hmm. father's former boss at the Institute of Occupational Medicine wrote me an email which basically decided that, saying, never forget that your dad made a very clear distinction between the politics and the science. Yeah. And that was what guided me in, in my uh, work on the, on the article. Very good. Keeping it on the personal level, uh, your, da your dad's training was in statistics. Your early training was in English literature and journalism. <laughs> so what I want to know is that that uh, that journey from being an English major to getting your master's in data journalism much, much later and, uh, and it sort of ending up uh, being able to write an article like this, which, you know, as a, also as a former English major, I thought this was a terrific article, and I understood almost everything but the but the graphs and charts that were inside. So, fine job. So, talk a little bit about um, going in English literature when your father was a statistician. Well, it, let's just say it was a steep learning curve, and even when I was doing English literature. I, I did a year study in philosophy, and I remember he gave me a great deal of help on on the basics of syllogistic logic and stuff like that. I think I still have his notes on my undergraduate um, my uh, undergraduate thesis in, in philosophy, in, in which he was very kind, but also completely surgical in his. <laughs> that was very sobering. All oh, that was a long time ago. That was thirty years ago. But um, I was gradually moving into the data end of things over the last few years. Um, and I wasn't so much discussing that with him um, as discussing people like Martin Gardy, you know, that wonderful writer on science. Yeah. Um, I came in, in a sense, via people like him, who was a real polymath, capable of, of writing about anything from Alice in Wonderland to, to the advances in, in, in quantum physics and actually making it understandable. So I'm a journalist. My job is to make things clear. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really just a quitting. Uh, when it came to tackling this article, I had to try and make complicated ideas uh, really simple. I was helped um, by Blethyn Hancock, the union leader, and by Robin Rudd, the lung specialist, um, and also by Gareth, Gareth Morgan, who gave these wonderful mm. um, summaries of what actually happened during the court case. They were right up there. Because in the end, it's not about the science, it's about the people involved. Um, and what the most difficult part of the argument was trying to, of the article, was trying to explain my father's defense of, of the data. And uh, in the end, what made it really clear and allowed me to cut a lot of the scientific, scientific scientific material out was what Gareth Morgan told me. He says, in the end, it's about the signal, not the static. Because even if there were minor errors in, in the research, and my dad was quite clear that this was not perfect, the, the whole immunoconiosis field research was had its flaw and that had to be acknowledged. But if the overall message was still the same after all these mistakes and caveats had been taken into account, then that suggested the, the basic research was sound. And that seemed to me the best way of putting it rather than get buried in the in data, which I didn't fully understand, obviously. But it's been a real education for me, and I, I hope to look a bit further in that, because I know this is still very much an issue in other parts of the world, in the United States, for example. Mm -hmm. You know that there was that Morgan quote about comparing this. There was a metaphor about radio signals and the noise. Yeah. And what the signal That's had the to be stronger to get through. And it made everything clear to me when I read, when I read, read that meta. It was a metaphor that helped me understand um, what was going on here. So I appreciated that. 
Well, yeah, just... I was so glad to, to have him say that. You yeah. know, when you're in an interview and somebody gives you exactly what you need, oh, yes. and, and that allowed that, that really solved it, really undid the knot, it really solved the problem for me. It was a great relief. Uh, I'm glad it was as much help to you as yeah. it was to me. You know, this was really a, a, a great way to honor your father. I mean, I, yes. I think that's a it's a it's a remarkable testimony. I th I, I want to congratulate you for that. Uh, when when you were looking at at kind of the the evidence here, and it, you know, did, so clearly you you agreed with your your dad's conclusion at the end of the day, but it, did you start out thinking, gee, I wonder if this if this is a uh, if this really is true? I mean, did did you start out saying, well, I'm going to look at this and see if I'm convinced as well, or how did, how did you approach the 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 stack of data and and all the information you were going to sit you know go through? Well, I, I had the advantages of, of, of knowing the ending before I got to the story. So uh, inevitably, I, I'd be approaching the story um, in, a, in a different way um, because I, this is something that happened a while back. But it, what I hadn't appreciated was how important it was and, and how much money eventually was paid out to the miners as a result of this case, not just because of my father, but also because of the evidence for the other experts involved, um, including Robin Rudd, the health, uh, the, the lung specialist. So I approached the story as... I know what the result was, and I wasn't going to presume to try and question the science. Um, I was looking at, at why was it so important, what was the attack on, on, on the research was being made, and uh, who was making it. Um, but really, having read the judgment, that one of the first places I started was reading the judgment, it was clear to me um, that, that there was no doubt about it that the the research was sound. Um, mm. And so I didn't have I didn't have a, an approach where I was going into this with a, an open mind. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't think there's any point in second-guessing a judgment that happened 30 nope. years ago. Uh, if there was something new to be uncovered, it was somewhere else. And in fact, what, what I found that I think was new simply covering the fact that the research had been challenged in the first place, which didn't get much coverage at the time because mm. most people resort, uh, reported on the judgment, not mm -hmm. on actually what happened in court. That was a new angle. But also these memos, these British call memos, um, they, were, for me, were quite revealing. That's not so much um, science, though. That's politics. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's harder to, to do what you've done, which is basically kind of build up the story. And a lot of times I think there's this this real, real sense of let's get to this ending. Let's, let's just talk about the punchline without the setup. Mm -hmm. And I think that you were trying to tell the story of how this, the data and the evaluation of it led to this story. I, you know, one of the it's one of the challenges, in fact, of, of doing a, a, something out of the archives, finding a way of creating the jeopardy. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's, that's yeah. true. Can, you, know, you, you went to school as a data journalist. You know, so you, you've got journalists here and you've got a, a, a statistician here. Talk to us about how does one, what does one do to, to become a data journalist given the, the course of study you followed? Well, I was lucky in that um, uh, I was able to take a year out fairly late in my career. Um, and I'd already been doing um, data graphics, news graphics at, at AFB, which is a different way into it. And, and I, I have a, a long background of writing and, and researching. But what I was hoping to do was to pick up some of the, the tools of the trade in terms of um, coding and uh, approaches, the more technological approaches. It has to be said that there are, there are journalists half my age who were coding like crazy uh, when they when they got there and, and I was still paddling in the shadows and I have to accept that there are limits to my skills in that area. <laughs> um, what, what I can do is, is I can tell a story and so I, I, I learned uh, the basics of R and a little bit of Python um, but I, I certainly wouldn't promote myself as a data journalist in that sense but what I, I, I try to do is to take 
complicated issues and simplify them. And, and statistics is something I can get to grips with. I can understand why they're important. I can understand the logic of it. So it's really about um, making, um, it's really science writing is what I'm doing as a data mm. journalist. Mm. Um, there are other people with other skills who can support and, and help and enhance the work that I'm doing. Uh, but I'm really a storyteller with just a, with a few fancy bells and whistles on. So what's what's next for you? What's what's kind of the next big story that you're going to tackle? Well, I'm back to the day job, which is um, working as a desk editor at um, AFP, the, an international news agency, which keeps me sharp. But I, I want, if I can, in, in my spare time, is to continue on this um, issue of industrial health. I've been talking to some people over in the United States about the situation in the, in the United States, and there are stories to be told there. But it's difficult to come up with something new when you're so far away. And I, and I think it's, there's been some Pulitzer Prize winning journalism in this area and I don't pretend to be able to, to reach those heights. So what I'm looking for is stories perhaps closer to home either in Britain or even in France in which I can apply some of the skills I picked up in the last year in Birmingham um, with uh, Paul Bradshaw uh, to, to stories here. So for example there's a, a great operation in Britain, you've probably heard of it, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and they've developed a local network of journalists to look into things like homelessness and, and use statistics and freedom of information requests to try and get a proper idea of the story and also put human faces on it and I'm just wondering whether we can't do something like that in France as well. There is something being done at the moment but um, I'd like to see if I can't apply some of the, the skills and, and the lessons learned in Britain to doing something similar in France. But that takes time, and I don't have a great deal of that. Before we, we go, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about sort of what was the legacy of this the judgment in this case? It was uh, an extremely important judgment, and it was fairly uncompromising in um, coming out in favor of the union that brought the action in favor of the miners and against British coal. It said uh, that British coal did not take sufficient um measures to protect the safety of the miners, um, but also that the attack on the uh, the research which was underpinning the miners' claim was not valid. And in fact, by the end of the trial, British Coal had basically retrenched and uh, withdrawn their position on that. So that was fairly done. That was fairly uh, unequivocal. What did happen is a massive um, program of payments was instituted to pay compensation to either to the miners or to the widows or to the surviving members of the family. But even that took a long time to get organized and paid out. So I would say, I think it's something like more than half of the payments were made not to the miners, but either to the widows or to the families. Oh, wow. And though, although we're talking about large numbers of people receiving compensation and, and quite large sums in some cases, um, it was, I think, the largest class action and the largest set of, pay of compensation paid out in Europe at that time. I don't know if that's still the case. But the fact is, a lot of those miners never lived to see the money and never lived to, to, to see any sense of um, justice being given them. And, and I think that's what makes a lot of people angry. Certainly, uh, I find it very distressing to see that. You point out at the end of the article that the British Coal and the National Coal Board no longer exist, but there is something called the Coal Authority. And at the time you wrote this, they had not responded to you. Did they ever respond to you? They didn't, I'm afraid. But it may simply be that the people who are really responsible and involved in this are no longer um, working. Mm, may, yeah. I expect many of them at my father's age have retired, if not, um, if they've not already died. Um, so it may be that getting the chain of responsibility that far back is 
is very difficult. But I am pursuing this story, particularly on the issue of the British coal memos, um, and I'm beginning to get a lot of very angry responses. We run a short piece oh, in the wow. Daily Mirror, which is a British tabloid. Yeah. So I, I don't think this story has given up all its secrets, and, and I'm hoping that we can push a little harder to get some kind of accounting for what was done because of the those memos and, and even the way they conducted themselves in the trial, I, I don't think it, it bears very well on British coal or the government at the time. Yeah. So watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> well, Johnny, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.